So reading Romans 14, commencing in verse 1. As for the one who is weak, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he can eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Our Father, your word tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God is fully equipped for every good work. It's our desire this morning as we look at this part of your breathed-out word to us, that you would teach us, that you would correct us, that you would rebuke us where we need that and that you would train us in righteousness, that we might be your servants, faithful servants in this world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how should you treat people that you disagree with? How do we live in a church community with people who are united in their belief on the core gospel message but who also have different opinions on a whole host of things. How should you treat other Christian believers with whom you disagree? And perhaps you'll find that within your own families, 
or within your small group or within the wider church family or perhaps in the wider church across the country as churches take different stands on various issues. From church structures to church strategies, from band styles to Bible translations, from communion practice to COVID regulations. There are lots of issues, and perhaps that last one in particular, where we have differing views. So how do we treat people that we disagree with? We're going to have to learn how, because that's not going to change. There's going to be all sorts of different opinions about many different things. Well, that's what this passage is about in Romans 14. Now, we've seen over the last few weeks that Paul is now showing us the transformation that God wants to bring about in those who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen that we're to become a people characterised by several different things. So in chapter 12, we saw that we were to be characterised by our service of each other. In chapter 13, by our submission to authority. And later on in chapter 13, which we saw last week, by our love of each other and by conduct worthy of the kingdom of light. Service, submission, love and light. And this morning, Paul adds one further attribute to Christian character, that of grace. Now, the word grace doesn't actually appear in in the passage that we had read, but the character that it describes is a character saturated by grace. To be people like this will make us radically different from the world, which is so harsh with those it disagrees with. And it will at the same time, I think, be very appealing to a world because a gracious community is a wonderful place to be. Now, Paul gives us three big reasons as to why we are to be gracious towards each other in this passage, which will give the structure to our time, and they're on the inside of the service sheet for you. The first one is this, verse 1 to 3. Show grace and do not judge, for God has welcomed all. If we are Christian people trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are on a level playing field as sinners saved by grace. But we are also at different stages in our walk with the Lord. And Paul here will speak of truly converted Christians, but speaks of them in two different groupings, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Now by this he doesn't mean uh, their faith in Christ for salvation. There are no weakly saved Christians or strongly saved Christians. Simple faith is all that's required for salvation. What Paul means is that some are weaker than others in what they understand to be the implications of that faith in how they live their lives. And it seems that there are two or three issues being debated in the Roman church, which will be debated in many churches, where these groupings are becoming apparent. The issues are that of food, verse 2, and sacred days, or holy days, verse 5. 
there are disagreements about how Christians should behave in these matters, matters which Paul calls opinions in verse 1. That is, they are not matters essential to salvation, the things that he's outlined in chapters 1 to 11 of Romans. See, if, Paul had contra- if they were contradicting those things, Paul would be much stronger and harsher with uh, such false teaching. And in fact, he is a bit later on in chapter 16, verse 17, uh, where he speaks like this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. So he's much harsher to those who are contradicting the core gospel truths. These opinions that he speaks of here are not those, they're not the core gospel truths, that stuff in Romans 1 to 11. Now, these are matters upon which true Christians have disagreed. Let's read the first one in verses 1 to 3. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel about opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So the particular issue in view is food. And it's not so much about veggies versus carnivores. It's more likely about the sensitivity of Jewish Christians to eat meat. That's what Paul refers to here as weak faith. See, for years, a Jewish person would have carefully monitored their diets, being careful not to eat pork in particular, but certain other restricted meats as well. And they'd be very much resistant to the meat that was sold in the pagan marketplaces, much of which would have been sacrificed to idols. So you can see how now this Jewish person's converted to Christ, it would be a hard habit to shake, having lived your whole life that way. There's no indication here that these people think that this would be essential to salvation, but they seem to think that it's important to holy living. And so they judge other Christians who believe that the Bible teaches that all food is okay to eat. And then look at the other side. Likewise, those who are strong in faith, who know that all food is okay to eat, who delight in a bacon sandwich or a sausage sandwich... Well, they're looking down their noses at these others for their weak faith. They're showing contempt for them. They're despising them. Well, that's the issue. Now, what's Paul going to say to that? Well, it's worth noting what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, lighten up. No big deal. He doesn't say that. He treats it seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he gives two chapters of this letter to it. doesn't say lighten up, no problem. Neither does he say there's no right answer to these things. Now actually he puts himself firmly in the strong camp in chapter 15 verse 1. We who are strong, he says there. He's convinced that the Bible does give an answer to this question, that all food is fine to eat, as Jesus said in Mark 7. So he doesn't just say, look, lighten up, no problem. He doesn't say there's no answer. He thinks there is an answer. But neither does he say what most modern people say when they disagree with someone. Well, let's just agree to disagree. 
That's a pretty modern way to handle uh, disagreement, isn't it? That's not his intention here. He wants the weak to ultimately become strong. He wants them to get to grips with the teaching of God's word on this issue. So he doesn't just shrug it off and say, no big deal. He doesn't claim there's no answer because God's word does answer this question. He knows it does. He doesn't say, therefore, just to agree to disagree. Instead, his main intention, his main goal is that judgmentalism is put aside, that contempt is done away with, and that grace is shown to all. That the grace of God will so capture their hearts that they will put accepting each other over and above being doctrinally and behaviourally correct on these disputable matters. So it could become, it, did, it may have already become, a source of quarrelling and disunity. And so Paul writes to help them to be gracious to each other that they may honour and love each other well. Now you can see that there in the text. Just have a look down. That It begins and ends with the same verb. Have a look there in verse 1. Welcome him. That means to take towards yourself, to welcome, to embrace. And Paul uses this as the big reason, number one, as to why we're to show grace in these things in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. See that? Welcome each other because God has welcomed you. Accept each other because God has accepted them. Be gracious to each other. Embrace each other because you have received grace when God has welcomed you. Jesus Christ died on a cross to welcome you into his family. And Paul here seems to be reminding us of Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If God has welcomed them, who are we to judge them? Who are we to condemn or despise them? To the strong, to those who have grasped God's word on this matter, he says, bear with the weak. Let them catch up in time. Don't look down on them. And to the weak, he says, don't be so judgmental. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. See, these disputable issues have some importance They need to be looked at under the authority of God's word. We need to work out what God's word says about these things. They're not nothing. They have some importance. But they are not as important as embracing your brother or sister in Christ. Show grace to them, for God has welcomed them and you. That's the first reason. Now let's look at the second one in verses 4 to 9. Show grace and do not judge, for Jesus is Lord of all. If you're an Olympic gymnast, 
and uh, looking out, I'm pretty sure that there aren't any Olympic gymnasts in here, a few too many donuts uh, for most of us. But imagine being an Olympic gymnast for a moment. You do your routine, and then you wait. And what are you waiting for? For the view of the crowd? For the opinion of your fellow athletes? No, you're waiting for the judges. The judges will announce your score. It's their opinion of you, their approval that matters in the end. Or if you work in a supermarket, well, the customers might like you, and the, the, so might the, your colleagues, or they might despise you. But when the appraisal comes around, there's only one view that matters. It's the boss's view. He's the one who has authority to say whether you're doing your job properly. And this is Paul's argument in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You may have noticed as it was read early on, earlier on that the repetition of the word Lord in this uh, central section, in verses 4 to 9, it appears nine times. The lordship of Jesus Christ over every believer at whatever stage of Christian maturity is reason number two not to judge others on disputable matters but show grace. Why? Because you're not answerable to me, ultimately. I'm just a servant. Jesus is the master. And we stand or fall according to what he thinks of us. And Paul says confidently that we will stand in the judgment, each of us, weak and strong, not because of ourselves, but because he will make us stand. For our master is a gracious master. And Paul explains this further with another example in verses 5 to 9, the example of holy days. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord. I give thanks to God. So here's the second issue, that of special days. Again, it's probably around a Jew-Gentile issue. A Jew who's become a Christian would find it very hard to put aside the festivals that he'd spent his whole life enjoying. His calendar would have revolved around Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Day of Atonement, all things that were required of a faithful Jew but are no longer required in the church of Jesus Christ. And as well as, as well as that, of course, he would have struggled to come to the view that the Sabbath day was no longer an obligation for him because his church is now meeting on a Sunday. So you can see how for that person it would take some time to get to grips with this, to come to terms with it. It's worth pointing out again here that it's not the case that this Jewish Christian thinks that these issues are necessary for salvation. Paul would have been a much harsher critic if he thought that, and the letter to the Galatians is an example of that. 
it's just like the food issue. It's that this Jewish believer could end up thinking that these, keeping these holy days would lead him to a more pure version of Christianity. That he was holier by doing them than his Gentile brother was. His Gentile brother who believed rightly that there was Christian freedom on these things. So what's Paul's instruction? Well, he takes a slightly different tack on this one. And he says that each person should be fully convinced in their own mind and submit themselves to Christ's lordship. If keeping certain days as sacred or abstaining for certain foods, not as a means to salvation, but if it's done as a matter of conscience in an attempt to live under the lordship of Jesus for his glory, then we should be gracious in understanding each other. Now, the commentator Tom Schreiner, uh, he puts this much better than I can. Let me read to you what he says. Paul can tolerate diverse practices which do not violate any biblical or moral norm, that's important, that bit, which do not violate any biblical or moral norm, as long as they are motivated by the glory of God. Paul can tolerate diverse practices which do not violate any biblical or moral norm as long as they are motivated by the glory of God. That's the highest priority for Paul, that these things are done for the Lord. Look at his explanation in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself. The us there is believers, it's both weak and strong. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Jesus is Lord over life and death through his death and resurrection, and therefore he's Lord over every moment of our lives and even the hours of our deaths. Living with him as Lord is what he is due. It's what really matters. And so that's how you're to assess what others are doing in these things. Are they seeking to glorify Jesus as Lord, even if you disagree with the practice that they're actually doing? If they are, then treat them with grace. Jesus is your Lord, he's my Lord, he's our Lord and so I should treat you with generosity and you should treat me that way too. See, motivation matters. Why are they doing it? For his glory. And so we should show grace to each other. That's the big second reason. Now, I'm sure there are questions that we have and the particular question that we have is what are the disputable matters in our church today? or in churches today across the country? Well, there could be, there could be loads. Let me um, take a, a couple, first of all, that, uh, the, the issues raised in this passage. We're not likely to be disputing over food, although I do think that food can still be pretty divisive. If someone said that they are convicted by God, that they should be a vegan in order to care for God's creation 
I should not, as a meat-eater, show contempt, even though I believe the Scriptures permit eating meat. And nor should they judge me for my carnivorous tendencies. So that's food. What about holy days? How should Christians observe the Sabbath? That would be a a big issue of dispute uh, throughout the decades and centuries. There would be a whole range of views on that in this church. And of course, between churches and church traditions, it's a matter of dispute. Now, my personal conviction is that there is Christian freedom as to how one should keep the Sabbath commandments. That the scriptures are clear that we do not need to keep it in the same way as the Old Testament believers. And so for us as a family, this is what this looks like. We'd make some attempt to keep Sundays special where we can. We try not to do the things that we normally do, like go shopping or, or for the kids to do their homework on a Sunday. We try and do those things on other days so we can keep that day free uh, of those distractions. But we wouldn't be hard line on that. So there will be some of you who have bumped into me on Waitrose, in Waitrose on the, on the way home after church on Sunday. If we forget something for lunch, that's what we'd do. So although we'd try to keep one day as special, Sunday as special, we wouldn't be hardline, we'd make some exceptions where we need to. That's our, our settled conviction and our understanding of the Bible and with the wisdom that we've been given. But we believe that there's Christian freedom on this issue. We feel, though, that it helps us to rest and to worship. Now, as soon as I tell you that, there are going to be people in this room who are going to nod their heads and go, yeah, great, that's exactly what I would do as well. People will think that. But there are also others who will be thinking that I'm way too liberal about that, that I don't take holiness seriously enough. And there will be others still who think that I'm way too conservative on that, that I haven't grasped true Christian freedom. And I will disagree back, of course, How should we respond to each other? Well, too often the responses on this issue have been to judge or to despise those who hold different views. But Paul says, to those I disagree with on the matter of holy days, I must be settled in my own convictions and show them grace. And they too must be settled in their own convictions and show me grace. I must not look down on others. They must not pass judgment on me. Those are the two in the passage. Now let's take one other, try and apply it to one other disputable matter, these principles. We're going with dress code. Okay, what we wear. Now that might seem like a small thing, um, but of course it can become a problem. I remember once I was in the church and I was sitting next to my friend and we're going to call him Dave, uh, just for anonymity's sake. And Dave had a cap on. And an older member of the church, we'll call her Deirdre for the same reason, she came up to him and she flicked it off the top of his head. And she told him that it was disrespectful to God to be dressed like that in God's house. Now, what's going on there? Well, to start with, Deirdre's got a slightly faulty view of 
the, her theology of the church, because the building is not God's house, the people are God's house in whom he dwells. So she's already off to a bad start. But what she's done is she's taken her personal convictions and she's inflicted it on others. And that's where Paul would take particular issue, I think. See, she believed that God was honoured more when she dressed smartly, as many people do. That was her conviction. I'm sure it's what she'd grown up with. I'm sure it was part of her family life and church tradition. Dave's conviction was that he could wear what he normally wore to church and that God would not be more honoured more or less by it. Now, biblically, Dave there is in the strong position. Deirdre's in the weak position. It's not biblically correct to think that God is honoured more by a shirt and tie than a baseball cap and shorts. So, of course, it's perfectly fine to dress smartly for church, and it can be especially helpful if you're doing that to make someone else comfortable. But there's no instruction to do so anywhere in the pages of the Bible. So Deirdre's position is a weak position to hold. The scriptures plainly teach that God does not accept us more or less based on what we wear, but accepts us only because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But you can see where it goes wrong. Because of her judgmental attitude, it then becomes easy for Dave in turn to treat Deirdre for contempt, with contempt to despise her her weak faith you get judgment and contempt in that relationship and it can destroy churches even little things like that and what should they have done well we know don't we they should have embraced each other they should have welcomed each other on the basis of the grace of God they should have treated each other with grace For Jesus is their Lord and Master, both of them. They are wanting to honour Jesus as Lord in different ways. So they must show grace to each other. Now there are many more examples that we could give of these disputable things for Christians. I'd encourage you to talk in the garden after the examples that I've given um, or some of these other things. True Christians disagree on this. Let me just give you a big list uh, of some of the topics. The drinking of alcohol is one. Worship music style is another. Which Bible translation is best? Political views, who you voted for this week, and who, in which way you might vote in any future possible um, referendum or election that's coming. And here's one for us at the moment. Exactly how the COVID regulations should be kept. You see, all these things could be sources of quarrelling and disunity and division. Unless we are gracious to those we disagree with. We'll come back to some of those next week. The conversation continues in chapter 14. Before we close, there's one third and final reason to show grace and not judge. And it's a brief one, but it's a serious one in verses 10 to 12. Show grace and do not judge, for God is judge of all. 
Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. See, Paul's third reason, it's given twice, in verses 10 and 12, as the kind of bread for an Old Testament sandwich in verse 11, which promises that every single human being to ever live will come to bow to the Lord. He's making a pretty simple but effective point in these verses, that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. We will all give account to God. There is a judgment to be made on every human being in all these matters. But we are not the judge. There is a judgment seat, but we don't sit in it. There is one Lord, and it isn't me, and it's not you either. So this should really humble us, shouldn't it? So you lot, you who are so proud in your knowledge and your strong faith, stop looking down on those who haven't caught up yet. And you lot, you who are so pious, stop judging those that you think have no regard for moral standards. Sit down, both of you. Humble yourselves before God, to whom you will give an account for how you dealt with those you disagreed with. What will the Lord ask us on that day when we stand before him? Well, he'll ask us many things when he sits in his judgment seat. But here's one thing he'll ask. Did you handle your brothers and sisters with grace? Did grace characterise the way you dealt with those you disagree with? God has welcomed us. Jesus is Lord of all, and God is our judge. Therefore, show grace to each other. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you in the knowledge of that final verse which tells us that one day we will give account to you that we shall bow the knee before you. Lord God, as we look back on our behaviour and the way that we've treated other people, we are so conscious that we have not always shown the grace that we should, that we have been judgmental to some and despised others. Forgive us, we pray, and change our hearts so that we who have experienced such grace from you might show grace towards others. Oh God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.